Welcome in, everybody. We do this every Friday here on 710 ESPN Seattle. It is time to get in the cage. It's brought to you by the Emerald Queen Casino, one of my all-time favorite people to speak to about the sport of MMA. was a former contender in the UFC. You know him, you love him, and he's with us on the Zeke's Pizza Hotline. He (laughs) is Nate Rock Quarry. Nate, how are you, man? I'm doing great, I guess. Uh, My spirits are very high. Well, they say the spirit's flowing, the body's a little weak. That's kind of where I'm at at the moment. Well, let, let, let's get into that. For those that don't know, and, and you should be following Nate on Twitter, at Nate Rock Quarry is where you can find him on Twitter, at Nate Rock Quarry. And you you posted a tweet the other day, something about, oh, I was a uh, comeback would be a lot of fun, and hey, I'm going to go work out and hit some mitts, and now I've got a torn bicep and a sore back, and I thought you were, you know, I thought that was hyperbole, <laughs> like, like, oh, I'm just really uh-huh. sore. And then you posted a picture, and I text you like, "Oh, you you legitimately got hurt hitting mitts and everything. You you weren't joking around. What happened?" So this is just kind of my my crazy experience of my life. I did not grow up as an athlete, as anyone who really knows my story. I was raised in a very restrictive cult. Discovered MMA at 24, changed my life. 11 years into training, I fought for the world title. Now here I am at 47. Uh, next year will mean that I've been training in MMA or some form of martial arts for literally half my lifetime. Well, I've been so busted up throughout the years. I have eight surgeries, two spinal fusions, 13 screws in my neck and my face, six screws in my back. My right pectoral was torn off in training. That had to get reattached. My left ankle was broken on the Ultimate Fighter. That had to have surgery. Uh, did I mention the seven chunks of bone that came out of my right <laughs> elbow all about the size of baby teeth? And I, I just couldn't use my right arm. I couldn't extend it. To this day, I can't do like yoga because I can't straighten my right arm. So I'm always in a push-up position. But so I kind of thought that my training days were over, that uh, this was just kind of my life. And I was on massively high dosages of opioids, 120 milligrams of Oxycontin daily, 410-325 narco daily, 2,400 milligrams of uh, what's called gabapentin, uh, which is a nerve anti-inflammatory, also known as Neurotin, because I had such bad sciatica going down my leg. Long story short, I get introduced to this company, Receptra, who does this CBD tincture that you just put on your tongue. And I'm sitting here going, whatever. I've heard this nonsense about how cannabis is going to save the world from you damn hippies for the past <laughs> 20 years. Right. Well, I start taking this CBD and, I, and I'm on so much pain meds, I have to go straight to the pain doctor to get my prescriptions. And every month he says, can we lower your prescription just a little bit? And every month I'd say, Doc, you, you don't know what I'm going through here. I'm in too much pain. Well, the next visit I have to him, I set the bottle down on the counter. I said, all right, it's time. Let's start weaning off and we'll see how it goes. And I think it was three or four months. I was completely off the Oxycontin. Uh, another couple months, I was completely off the nerve anti-inflammatory, the gabapentin, and then worked my way off of the narco as well. And with that came a, a renewed energy, just a holistic feeling of, of, of wellness around my body. So now I sound like the CBD pushing uh, hippie cannabis guy. <laughs> For good reason. I said, yeah, I said, and this is, and I'm not paid by Receptra. You know, they they sponsor me, they give me product, which I appreciate, but nobody tell them I would buy that if they cut my my sponsorship. But so I go, God, I feel better than I have in years. I'm gonna try hitting the gym again. So I go down and I take a jujitsu class, and I'm like, God, I I miss this so much. 
And so I started off training jiu-jitsu twice a week, Monday and Friday at Next Level MMA here really close to my home. Just a phenomenal group of guys. The black belt that I'm training with, Alex Lee, when he walked into the gym, I think it was 12 years ago, I was there training for UFC fights. He was literally walked into the gym going, I've been watching jiu-jitsu and MMA on TV and YouTube, and I want to learn this. Now he's a black belt instructing me, teaching my classes. Wow. And it's just the coolest thing to see his progression. So now I get to train under the guy that, that joined the gym when I was fighting in UFC. And so as time went along, I started building up that strength again. And I, I, I had to adjust my training because for me, jiu-jitsu was all MMA-based, which is very different. In my mind, there's three kinds of jiu-jitsu. There's gi jiu-jitsu where you're wearing the jacket or you're wearing the pants, and there's a lot of grabbing and holding and, right. and chokes, collar chokes, things like that. Then you have no gi jiu-jitsu. You're just wearing a rash guard and shorts or maybe even shirtless. And it's a lot more physical game. It's a lot faster. Uh, athleticism plays a big part into it. Then you have MMA jiu-jitsu, which is – I'm going to be on top of you the entire time doing punishment. If you're on top of me, I'm going to reverse you. I'm going to stand up. But my big goal is you can't submit me, you can't hit me, and I need to be in a spot where I can hurt you badly. And you could see that when I fought Jason McDonald. Uh, I had just lost to Damian Maya. He took my back and choked me out. So, And Jason McDonald's a great jiu-jitsu black belt as well. He just wanted to get me down to the ground. Again, I knew nothing about jiu-jitsu. Well, kind of a secret that I never told anybody was, although Damian Myers is a much better grappler than I am, this is 100% not an excuse because he whooped my ass. <laughs> I was also sick that night. Mm -hmm. I was fighting with a 102-degree fever. I was throwing up all night after making weight on Friday. So Damian didn't get the best that I had to offer, but that's what fighting is about. It's You meet on a certain date, and you see who's better. And I never wanted a rematch because, man, if he kicked my ass twice when I was healthy, that would be embarrassing. <laughs> right. But so now I'm fighting Jason McDonald, and he just thinks I don't know anything. And I don't – after I lose to Damian Maia, I don't go, hey, I was sick. Sorry for my poor performance. No, that's just not who I am. I just said, no, I lost. It is what it is. I think the only person I told I was sick was Joe Silva, the matchmaker for the UFC. Because I wanted him to know, you know, you direct my career. I want you to know I can do better. So I get lined up with Jason McDonald, and he just wants to get me down to the ground. Again, I know nothing about jiu-jitsu. So I hip-toss him, end up in his guard, and just hammered him with elbows. Split him open. I wasn't trying to pass the guard. All I wanted to do was damage. And I have my elbow top game. That's one of my best positions, one of the best things that I can do. And the fight finished, I think, in about the halfway through the first round. He was TKO, just too much blood, that kind of stuff. So that's been my jujitsu game, being on top and delivering punishment. Mm -hmm. Well, now switching that to, no, I can be on the bottom. I can take these risks. I can go for an ankle lock because if I miss it, I'm not going to get pounded in the face. It really made me switch over to thinking more about the game, taking more chances. And after a few months of training, I stopped and I realized this is the first time in 20 years I'm training, not thinking about an upcoming fight. And this is just amazing. This is reminds me why I got into this sport in the first place, because I love it. And the people that you meet at the gym, I heard Joe Rogan talk on this podcast that most men, most women don't make any new friends past 30, 35. They've got their job. Those are generally the friends that they're going to have. They're not going out and meeting new people. And now here I am at the gym meeting a bunch of kids now, from my perspective, 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds, people that are, are new, people that are brown belts, black belts. 
and you see immediately the caliber of a person when you're grappling with them. Right. Are they type that's going to tap out immediately? Are they going to be the type that thinks that every match is to the death? Uh, and, and it's funny because a good gym then kind of also molds those people who have difficult personalities into good people because you can't remain an asshole if you're getting beaten down every single day. And we can always amp up the torture on you a little bit. If you need a little bit more, uh, <laughs> Hey, what you're doing isn't acceptable. Yeah. You got to get humbled. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I can do my knee rides. You're flat on your back. I'll put my knee in your stomach and, and put some weight on you. Or maybe I'll grab the back of your head and pull you up in tight to it. Or the can opener. Or if I think, uh, kind of. But if I, I think you need a little bit more uh, redirection with your attitude, then I'll do the knee right on your chest. <laughs> so now you have 210 pounds pushing down on you while I'm pulling on your head. And if I think that lesson isn't working, then I switch the knee right to the face. <laughs> so then I'm just grinding my chin across your face. And I did that to a, a kid one time who was known to headbutt people, split them. And he fell on top of me, and I spun him over and knee rode on his face for the rest of the round. And the best part about it was he had braces. Oh, and he was well into his 20s. He was old enough to know better. Let's make that clear. It wasn't a 12-year-old kid. Yeah. And he looks at me and he says, did I do something to upset you? <laughs> and I said, look, buddy, this, this is how it goes. If you don't care about my safety, that means that I have to care about my safety. I can't trust that you're worried that I won't be able to make my fight to feed my family. So if I have to worry about my safety, that means I don't have any extra time or energy to worry about yours. So this is how it's going to go until you calm down and realize every match you're isn't to the death. It's called practice. Yeah. As it were, practicing. It's not called competition. And that, that helped to kind of work wonders to change his attitude. But, and I know I'm just kind of rambling on and on here, I learned that same exact lesson when I was 25. I was training with Chris Howder, one of the first American black belts in jiu-jitsu. And he came up to do a seminar. And Howder at the time, super athletic guy, probably 160, dripping wet. Yep. I'm 25, probably about 190, 200 pounds. Just a, looking back, I'm like, I was just a, a beast who was angry, wanted to win every single match. And my training partners would tell me, hey, you know, you need to calm down. You need to stop trying to win every match. And I remember looking at him going, well, I'm trying to. I don't really understand what you're saying. So I'm rolling with Chris Howder. He puts me in a triangle. I lift him up off the mat and start pile driving him into the mat. <laughs> and he switches to an arm bar and makes me tap for an eternity. I'm sitting there tapping on him for a good 10, 15 seconds. Tap, 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 tap. <laughs> Please let go. Please let go. <laughs> stretched out like a guitar string. He knows exactly how far he can hold this to where I'm in excruciating pain, but it's not causing an injury. And he lets go, and he looks at me, and he says, the wisest thing ever. You may want to consider using a little more technique and a little less strength in the future. Yeah. And I looked at him, and I said, thank you, sir, for not breaking my arm. Thank you for the lesson. <laughs> and that's what it took. Yep. And that calmed me down, and I realized it. And so I never get too mad at the, the, the kids, the people that need to learn that lesson, but I'm always happy to teach them as well because I've been on both sides of it. That's why I don't like rolling with white belts. I don't like rolling with white belts oh, yeah. or new blue belts. I'm like, you know, that's oh, any yeah. time I get injured, 
It's not with a black belt. It's not somebody in my rank. No. It's not a brown belt or even purple. It's somebody that's, you know, <laughs> trying to prove something against me or somebody that's big or somebody that's more. I don't know. It's 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 I, yeah. fail safe. I find blue belts are the worst to roll with because they they know enough of the techniques to spot it. Oh, this is where I need to be, but they don't know how to flow into that. So they're jumping from one position to another. And I always compare it to rolling with a, a bunch of two by fours. Yeah. Because you just have these knees and elbows flailing around as they're trying to get some plutes and they're whacking you with it. And boy, back in the day, and once again, all my stories make me look bad in retrospect. <laughs> I'd be training with guys and they would hit me with an elbow. It would sound like dunk, dunk. <laughs> because they would hit me with an elbow and then I would immediately hit them with an elbow at least twice as hard. And then I would apologize. Say, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to hit you with the elbow there. I'll try to be more careful in the future. Yeah. yeah. It was just one of those things like, okay, you just elbowed me. I could elbow you into oblivion at any time, but I'm not because we're here training and I'm thinking of your safety. But again, if you're not thinking of mine, then I'll ask you. You know, errant elbows happen, those kind of things. Uh, I've had to tone down a little bit. Uh, BJ Penn once called me the uh, club pro at Team Quest. Before I'd made it into the UFC, I was I was kind of that gatekeeper guy, or I was I was stuck because I wasn't known enough, I wasn't good enough to fight in the big show, but I was too good or too well known to fight in the small shows. So the up and comers and King of the Cage, Grand the Shows, those and those shows didn't want to fight me because who am I? And if they lose, uh, that's bad for them. They lost to nobody, and if they win, well, nobody knows who I am in the first place. <laughs> So I was kind of stuck in the zone. BJ Penn said, oh, yeah, you're the club pro. Not quite good enough to be in the UFC like like the heavyweight champion Randy Couture you've got there or Matt Lindland, the number one contender, or Dan Henderson, one of the biggest badasses of all time. But you're right there in the mix at the door, and anyone who comes through has to go through you. I was like, you know, I'm actually going to take that as a pretty good compliment. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, let me let me ask you, speaking of guys you train with and, and older guys and all that, I don't know how much you've seen of this John Jones story. He's got uh-huh. he's got a dispute going with with a, a guy that was uh, in his corner. Not a long it – wasn't, it wasn't Jackson. It wasn't Winkle John. It was, uh, it was Frank Lester, I believe, is his name. And he was with him for a few fights, and they've had a falling out. And Lester took to social media saying, you know, the you know, Wink did me dirty and John Jones did me dirty and – they they said they were going to pay me twenty grand and they only paid me seven and they and you know he's threatening John you know you're not the real one I'm the real one you better not see me all that good stuff, which I find interesting when you're talking about maybe the greatest to ever step into an octagon yeah. you're threatening them with physical violence is interesting but yeah we we've seen fallout in fact we saw Cowboy Cerrone have a have a fallout with the same camp with with Jackson Winklejohn mm-hmm. but I'm I'm not isolating it to them because we see it all the time whether it's T J Dillashaw and Alpha Male and Guys seem yeah. to get to a point. Is is it fatigue that sets in? Is it just I've heard this message over and over and over. I don't hear it anymore. How do you, just give me a sense as a fighter that dynamic between a coaching staff, if you will, and and how long is there a point of burnout on the message? It's such an interesting concept to even think about, and you have the egos of these alpha males. Like a lot of times, the fighters really just want to be told what to do. They came from a rough childhood. They're looking for a father figure to actually take place. So the best coaches always ended up being therapists as much as they were pod holders. So you have this crazy dynamic going on, and then suddenly 
somebody's saying, well, I'm the one out there fighting. I'm out the one doing their, uh, doing all this work. I'm the product. Why am I paying you so much? Why are you getting so much credit? And the coach is saying, without me, where would you be? You'd be nothing. I'm the one that actually built you. And so you have to have this this synergy that works among them. Uh, I, I can't think of the term when two animals, yeah, I guess a symbiotic relationship, where they realize their position and their work. And uh, me being on, on both sides of this so many times, uh, that, in, in my perspective, we've seen that failing happen over the years from these gyms that, that showed up and they were really powerful, whether it was the Lions Den and they burn out or my own personal experience with Team Quest. Nobody really hears about Team Quest fighters anymore fighting in the UFC, uh, becoming world champions, anything like that. And I experienced that firsthand because when I had my first back surgery back in 2005, I think it was, I had a long time of sitting back and watching. I would just attend practice, watch how things went along. And I could see the relationship between the coach, who was also the owner of the gym, and the fighters. And I started thinking about this comparing it to an NBA basketball team or something, where all the players are all united and they work for the trailblazers. Whereas with fighters, you're working with the coaches, with the management, but you're paying them. So if they're trying to get more out of you, you're trying to get more out of them for paying less. And you have this very interesting dynamic. And so when I went to Team Quest, it was really because I was sick and tired of, of listening to the team bitch and complain after every practice about how unhappy they were. Like, we're paying 20% of our gross income to Team Quest, and all we're doing is showing up and punching each other in the face. All we're doing is sparring. So I went to Team Quest, and I said, hey, you guys are about to have a revolution here. And we don't have a Muay Thai coach. We don't have a boxing coach. Our jiu-jitsu coach just got his purple belt. We've got Damian Maya and Dean Lister in our weight classes. We don't have a conditioning coach. We don't have any of these things. Our practices are so haphazard. We don't know what we're going to be learning. There's no system. We're showing up, learning a random technique, and then sparring for 45 minutes. I was like, uh, I need, I need to, to grow my skills because right now all I'm doing is getting better at what I already do well and getting worse at what I don't do well mm-hmm. because there's no wrestling class. I need to learn how to take down these Olympic wrestlers. And when I shoot on Kotor, Henderson, Rinland, you stuff me and beat the hell out of me for the rest of the round. <laughs> so I'm not taking any shots. I'm not, that's why my wrestling is so bad. And as I was representing the whole team, and I went and I sat with, he's passed away now, for a listen, and Matt Limland, I was told flat out, this is our school, this is our gym, this is how we run it, we're not hiring any of those coaches, if you don't like it, leave. Hmm. And when, when put down, put down in those types of words, I sat back and said, well, this is, this is my career, this is how I feed my family. And they would always do the buddy system with you. It would be, hey, can you go corner these guys up in Washington for the weekend, drive up on Friday, help them make way, be there for the fight, corner them, uh, drive back on Sunday. I'd be like, well, cool, you know, I can, but, you know, can I get some compensation? You know, they're paying 20% of what they make to you guys, and now you're asking me to step in as the coach. And their sponsor is always, but don't you want to see your friends be successful? Don't you want to be there for the fighters? Are you that selfish? Like, oh, God, no, of course not. I want to help my friends succeed. But then I'd go back and say, hey, I want to go train with this black belt. He's charging me a hell of a deal, 50 bucks an hour. Can I just deduct that from the 20% that I'm paying you? 
And word for word, this is what Matt Lindman told me. You can pay whoever the hell you want, but you give us our money. <laughs> and, I, and I sat back and I said, you do not understand. I'm not getting any better. If I learn one technique from ruling with this black belt, or I slip one punch from this boxing coach, or I check one kick from my Muay Thai coach, or I'm in better shape because of the conditioning coach, I'm going to get that one bonus of maybe another $10,000, which isn't much in the grand scheme of things, but for a starving fighter, and you're taking two grand of that. I would have paid these coaches maybe 500 bucks for all their help. Mm-hmm. But it was, no, this is how we run business. If you don't like it, leave. So I went back to the team, and I said, they're not going to change. And I said, why don't we invest that 20% into ourselves? Worst case scenario, I have a huge basement. We'll drop some mats down. But what I recommend is we just go to another gym and say, hey, we're the former Team Quest Fight Club. We would like to train here. We're happy to, to pay your membership dues. We will advertise. We train here for anybody that asks. Every interview we do, do you want us here as a team? Because it was us as the fighters that made Team Quest what it was. They had 500 students at one time. And let's just say on the low end, they're each paying 100 bucks a piece. Right. That's a lot of money coming in. And yet I was told once again by Matt Lindland, we lose money on the fight team. It's killing us. We just can't make any money doing this stuff. And I sat back and I said, do you say that about the lights? Do you turn off the lights because you're just not making any money off the lights? Without the lights, you can't teach class. How much promotion do you think you're getting from these fighters? That's why everybody's here, because they walk through the door and they go, oh, my God, that's Chris Levin. I just watched him on The Ultimate Fighter. That's Ed Herman. I just watched him on The Ultimate Fighter. That's Josh Haynes. He just made it to the finals of The Ultimate Fighter. But no, because our 20% payment wasn't enough compared to the 500 students you got. It's a huge waste of time for them. So would you say so, would you say most of the fallout we see, whether it was your situation or what we're seeing, obviously, with Jones, they've made it very clear, or at least Frank Lester made it clear, it's about finances. Uh, TJ Dillashaw again, uh, Cowboy Cerrone, all anybody we've heard of leaving a camp, do you think it, it tends to come down more to money than just I'm burnt out on this guy's message or method? Probably a little bit of both. Because once again, you have the ego, then you have the money. And that's why I like to have it as kind of a sliding thing. As the fighter becomes more valuable and his or her name is actually drawing in crowds, why should they be paying 20%? Let's make it a little bit more. He was making five grand and you wanted 20%. That's a big chunk. He's poor, but okay. Well, now he's making 100 grand and you still want 20%. You're not putting in any more energy. So why don't we renegotiate that? And from my mind, this is one of the keys to happiness in life in general, compromise, to where neither of you get what you want, but you get enough to where you're both fairly satisfied. And being able to set aside that ego, uh, the last gym, and I've seen a lot of gyms be built up. I've seen a lot of them fail. I've been a part of a lot of gyms. I've helped open a lot of gyms, through a lot of that. And so the gym that I train at now, next level, when my original coach there, Greg Thompson, who left Team Quest, he was the only person who saw what was happening and said, this is not right, I'm going with Nate Quarry. So he opened Next Level and he said, I want you to be a partial owner in this gym. And I looked at him and I said, this is how that will go down. At some point in the future, maybe a week from now, maybe a year, maybe 10 years from now, 15 years, I don't know, but I guarantee you this will happen. You'll look at me and say, you're not doing enough for how much I'm paying you. Or... I will look at you at some point in the future and say, you're not paying me enough for what I'm doing for you. 
I said, this is your gym. I'm a fighter. I want you to be successful off of your hard work and your investment in the gym. I don't want a dime of this, but anytime you need my help, promotion, teaching classes, whatever it may be, let me help you. Let me be that face. Let me be that voice. I will promote you. I will stand on the corner wearing a key saying, need money to fight ninjas <laughs> who killed my family and hand out cards to next level. That's the loyalty that I have to the coaches that have helped me get where I am today. And so I think it's finding that, <clears throat> that synergy, that symbiotic relationship, putting aside the ego, recognizing, oh, it's not completely one-sided, just my take. No, it's, it's, it's both. Hey, last thing before we let you go. Again, we're speaking with Nate Corey here on 710 ESPN Seattle. Always love talking the sport with him, but we're kind of getting into the business aspect of things here. And now we're getting into the legal aspect. And for people that aren't aware, you've, you've been involved in part of a class action lawsuit with the UFC, with uh, uh, Kung Lee's part of it, some other notable names that people who follow the sport know. For those that aren't aware, could you give us like the Reader's Digest version of what what your complaint, your, your group, what, what, what you're battling for, what you're battling against. Because I find when, when there's news being, uh, you know, being thrown out there about the progress of this, some, some people I talk to are like, wait, what, what's going on? I, I didn't know this was happening. What's happening? And it's hard to give them a concise storyline. Here's what's going on. Here's what the UFC is doing. Here's what these fighters are, are, are fighting for. Could, could you give listeners who aren't aware of this whole thing just kind of that, that Cliff Notes version? Oh, I'm happy to because this is really, this is the biggest, the most important fight in MMA history. This is huge. This is going to change the sport. And it is a little, uh, it, it kind of hurts my heart a little bit. i got to be honest with you that the fans don't know much more or anything about this. Because our class action lawsuit now has been going on for five years. We've been fighting for this. And really, we have two main goals here. And one's just pretty simple. We just want to reform the entire sport of MMA for all current, future fighters. And just something simple like that. And secondly, <laughs> get financial compensation for the years that we as fighters have been underpaid due to the, the monopoly that the UFC set up, the way they've been able to control the wages and control the sport. So we're, we're really trying to change the sport, the contracts that the UFC puts together. Like, they have a champion's clause. Now imagine in the sport of boxing, the goal is to get that belt. And as soon as you get that belt, you get to dictate your career. You get to the, I want to fight. I want to become the undisputed world champion. I'm going to unify all of these belts. And if we think back to Muhammad Ali, when he was the undisputed champion, most people can't name one belt that he fought for. They just know he was the champ. The UFC promotes the UFC. The fighters are just a necessary component there. They don't want to give any of the credit to the fighters for what we fought for. So just a few weeks ago, we had uh, an entire week, five days, down in the Las Vegas courtroom, uh, and we had our financial expert, Dr. Singer, facing off against the UFC's financial expert. And it was, it was just a beautiful thing to see how our experts showed through, through years of research comparison to other sports, whether it was team sports, the NFL, NBA, MLB, boxing, things like that, things where free agency has come into play. Uh, and the estimate that he gives and what we're seeking in our lawsuit is $1.6 billion in damage. Now, what that means is that during our class representation time, we had 1,214 fighters who were being underpaid. And by the model that our expert has set up, 
He's saying that we, sh- we were shorted $1.6 billion. So that's what we're going for in our lawsuit, to get compensated what we were owed, and then to change the sport as well to where the UFC can no longer be the monopoly by locking up the fighters into the long-term exclusive contracts. And, and this has been Dana White and the Fertitta's game all along. That's why they didn't go into boxing, because the boxers had the protection of the Muhammad Ali Act, which says that a promoter cannot own the belt. The promoter cannot decide the rankings. The promoter cannot lock them up into these these restrictive long-term contracts. Well, what it all comes down to, so that's for the fighters. What about the fans? Well, to me, the greatest fight that never happened, and I talk about this all the time, Randy Couture versus Fedor. Mm-hmm. When you reach the level, the top level like Randy, and he's been the world champion, light heavyweight, heavyweight, five or six times. He's got, we're talking champ, 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 champ. It's, it's ridiculous. But there was one guy who was also a champ, Fedor Emelianco. Which one of them is really the best? Who is going to be the undisputed champion? I would pay to see that fight. Mark Cuban would pay to see that fight. And that's what he tried to do. He tried to set that fight up, and he said, what, what's the problem? I'm a promoter. I'm showing up with money. I want to put on this fight. UFC said, no. No, we have Randy under an undisputed long-term contract. If Fader wants to sign with us, then we'll put on the fight. And Fader looked at the contract, and he said, no. I'm not giving away my rights. I'm not giving away everything. If I get the championship, then I have to fight for you for the rest of my career. You own me and control me? No, I'm not doing that. So that fight never happened. So for the fans, you will get the fights you want. And for the fighters as well, testing out the free market, if you look at free agency when it came to baseball, football, anything like that, that's when the compensation for the athletes really soared. Mm -hmm. And take the NFL when they were paying the players just a pittance, a few thousand dollars, keeping 80% of the money and paying the players next to nothing. They say the same tired argument every time. Well, if we pay you guys, God, that, that's just going to kill the sport. Free agency, that would just end it because there's just not enough money to go around. Well, in actuality, now more people become interested in the sport. Well, who's playing for our team this year? Oh, my God, we got Rodriguez. We got this guy on our team. Oh, this is going to be amazing. It built this excitement. And shockingly enough, the billionaire owners get richer, and the players also make enough money to make it worth their while because if you look at something like the NFL – the injury rate in the NFL is 100%. Right. The average lifespan of an NFL player, three and a half years. Mm-hmm. So they started playing Pop Warner as a little kid through high school, through college for free, which is something that is a whole other discussion that upsets me. Make it into the NFL, and they've got on average three and a half years to make all of that worthwhile to put it in there. And they will say, we are giving up our future, our body, our damage because of the payday we're getting. This is life-changing money. Now you have fighters who are in this exact same position. Coleman having to do a GoFundMe page, one of the greatest champions of all time, for hip surgery. That's how ridiculous the sport is. We give up our bodies. As I said earlier, my last fight against Jorge Rivera, he beat the hell out of me. 13 screws in the left side of my face. He shattered my face in the first round. I came back out and fought in the second round because I'm a fighter. Dana White is on tape saying, if we pay these guys more money, they won't fight as hard. We want to keep them hungry. We want them to fight whoever we want, whenever we want, no matter if they're injured or not, and then begging for bonuses at the end of the night. That's immoral. 
they sold the company for over $4 billion. They've been raking in profits over and over again, buying yachts, private planes while we're flying coach to go to our fights. It's just ridiculous. And every sport has had to go through this. And as a matter of fact, people, our, our lifespans are so short, people forget. A hundred years ago, people had to fight for the right for fire exits. <laughs> because there was a huge fire, the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire. Over a hundred people, mostly women, died because the bosses said, well, if we close these doors, that'll keep them there working. And unclean working conditions and no breaks. Five-year-old children working in factories. So people had to fight for those rights so children could actually have a childhood, so we could have fire exits, so we could have safety, so we could have OSHA. People forget about these things that have, have been fought for by others who stood up and said no. In the past, the Rockefellers, they would send in the Pinkertons. They'd rather send in gunmen than give the workers raises. People had to fight for those things. It's our time. We're going to fight for this. We're going to win. Uh, we believe that the judge is sympathetic to our case. The UFC's experts, all they said was, no, the plaintiffs are wrong. They don't know what they're talking about. And the judge said, do you have any evidence to prove that? No. I just take my word for it. We, we paid him as much as we possibly could. And we're sitting here going, are you kidding me? It, it, it was a beautiful thing to see. Uh, we think that the court case is going very well. I really like to see more and more people, the fans, get involved with it, retweet the things when we're talking about the court case. You don't have to retweet all my political nonsense if you don't want to. I don't blame you. Uh, <laughs> and especially the fighters. When we're in the courtroom, we are fighting for you. We're fighting for the next generation of fighters. We're fighting for the fighters under contract in the UFC right now. We're fighting for the fighters that are retired. We would love to see them show up at the next Las Vegas courtroom and put a face to this. So they know, no, we, we aren't just nameless numbers like the UFC tries to say. We're a class. We're all treated the same way. We all have this, the same exact journey, the same exact battle. We're here fighting for our rights. It's our turn, and we're going to win. And it's going to change the sport, and you're going to see the level of athleticism. When you have somebody sitting down and go, well, I could uh, join the NFL, maybe play for three and a half years, sit on the bench the entire time, not even play, and still make you know, close to $2 million dollars. Or I could take a shot in the UFC, who controls 90, 95% of the MMA revenue worldwide, and maybe make 50 grand at the end of my career if I become a champion and it lasts a long time, maybe a, a couple million. It's just not worth it. Yeah. But then when, you, when those athletes are able to say, no, I believe in my skills, I believe I could be a world champion, and the champions are negotiating between Bellator and the UFC, and Mark Cuban's got his own promotion now. And now the paydays for these are huge. You're going to see the level of athleticism just explode. And don't forget, don't believe the BS. Oh, they, they should be doing it for the love of the sport. No one starts MMA that doesn't love the sport. It's too hard. Right. If you think you're joining the sport for, for women and money and the excitement or men or whatever you're, you're into, join a band. You get to drink every single night. Uh, it's way cooler. You're most likely not going to the hospital after a good show. Doesn't hurt nearly uh, as much. Your way. Exactly. I've, I've done both, Nate. I've done both, and I can speak from experience. It hurts much less. It hurts much less. Uh, Nate Rock Quarry is, what is his Twitter handle, at Nate Rock Quarry. Uh, always, always a great guest. Nate, really appreciate the time, as always, my friend. 
Uh, heal up fast, man. I, uh, that's a bummer that that whole thing happened. I, I, I apologize. I thought you were kidding when you when you tweeted that out initially. <laughs> I thought I thought it was just well, commentary on being an older guy. Like, oh man, uh, everything's torn, everything hurts, and then you, oh man, he's serious. And, and the bicep how. So I, I literally tore my bicep at the beginning of the class. I looked down, saw it curl up. I looked at the class. I said, I just tore my left bicep. Uh, so I tucked my sh- my hand into my shorts, and I said, okay, I'm going to be demonstrating with my right hand. And I showed so I continued to teach the class. As I was doing that, and I was showing a lot of explosive entries and exits and movement, my lower back just wasn't accustomed to that kind of movement. By the time I got home, I could barely walk because, as I've said, I've had a couple back surgeries. And down at, my, my, at the very bottom of my spine, my L5-S1 is collapsing. And so that nerve became inflamed. And so I haven't been able to walk for the past five days without using a crutch. Ugh. And so now I'm waiting on cortisone shots to get in there. And you know, this is my journey. This is what I've chosen to do. It's all part of it. But you know, we deserve the compensation for what we've gone through. And now I'm kind of battling with the insurance companies to try and get the, the treatment that I need. And Oh, if you really want to break a story, I've got some news. As, as anyone that follows me on, on Twitter or Facebook, I don't talk a whole lot about my personal life. Uh, I'm much more uh, talking about worldwide situations, MMA and stuff like that. But if you really want to break a story, I've got one here for you. What's that? I'm going to be a new father at the end of November. Really? Congratulations, man. My wife is uh, just over seven months pregnant, so we're having a little boy in November. So i got to get healthy so I can carry around that little spaz because I know he's just going to (laughs) be a demon running around his hair on fire. That is awesome. Congratulations, my friend. Very happy for you. Very happy for you. That's awesome news. Thank you. I'll I'll tweet that out. We'll get the headlines going. (laughs) And, 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 again, it's like Kung Lee said. He has a boy who 100% wants to fight in MMA, and he wants to make sure he gets the treatment that he deserves. And so I don't know what pathway my boy's going to take. My daughter, my daughter hated MMA. They wanted nothing to do with jiu-jitsu. She loves horses. So we just put her down that pathway. Yeah. But if my boy wants to, to take MMA, i got a lot of life lessons I can pass on. You know, number one is you have to treat this like a business because everyone else around you is. Promoters just want to put on the best shows, put the, the most butts in the seats. You have to look out for yourself. You have to fight for your rights because if you're not willing to fight for your rights, no one else will. Absolutely. Nate, as always, fantastic stuff. Really appreciate it. Heal up fast, my friend, and congratulations on the on the uh, upcoming birth of your of your next child. That's awesome news, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. Anytime.